worship with us. There is a sound I love to hear. It's the sound of the Savior's robe as he walks into the room where people pray. When we hear praises, he Keep worshiping.
Good morning, RCC. You may be seated. It's so good to be with you today. My name is uh, Ben Seaman. I serve on staff as our lead minister. Whether you're watching online or in-house, welcome. We're so glad to have you. We're a church that exists to invite people to journey with Jesus. Uh, if you wouldn't mind online, on your couch, or on the, in your chair on campus, grab your smartphone, text the word CONNECT to the 10-digit number on the screen. If you are in-house, you can also use the QR code in front of you as you fill out the CONNECT card that way. This is our last weekend for Journey Out opportunities for you to grab a Journey Out swag bag, a t-shirt. We'd love for you to hop on our website or in the lobby on your way out to sign up for a summer Journey Out outreach uh, opportunity, which coincides with our current teaching series, uh, To Love Where You Live. Uh, next Sunday uh, is our next uh, starting point, and it's a 101 class, introductory class into the life of our church, our mission, our values, and how you and your family can be a part of it. If you'd like to sign up for that, you could do one or two ways. Digitally, you could text the word TOWARDS to the 10-digit number on the screen, 
or you can talk to someone out in the lobby and sign up at the Hub. Our uh, First Impressions volunteers would love to follow up with you. I'm excited today. We've got a guest speaker in the house. Dr. John Weatherly is here to speak to close out our series. Uh, Dr. Weatherly has worn many hats in my relationship with him. Uh, he, a musician, professor, elder, and my favorite title, friend. So hopefully he's nice to me and won't share every story that he knows about me, but John and his wife Tam Tammy are here today. And they're actually a, a year delayed, but through the, uh, the gift of their children have gifted them a week in Bar Harbor. They're here celebrating their 40th anniversary. So can we give them a hand? That's awesome. Yeah, so we're super excited to have the Weatherlies here in-house today. Uh, as I think about our generosity moment, uh, financial generosity is something we practice every weekend here at RCC. If you are a guest, please do not feel compelled to give. Uh, this is part of folks that are two things, followers of Jesus and have made a commitment that RCC uh, is their church home. As I think about generosity, I've been thinking about Psalm 131. It's a chapter with uh, only three verses, so it's a really good chapter to read. Uh, here's what the writer says, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I'm not quickly... Uh, easily willing to get in, in over my head, I think is what he's saying. Notice verse 2, I have, calmed, I, I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Uh, money is a gift. It gives us freedom. It gives us uh, independence. It gives us autonomy. It gives us you know, self-sufficiency. But when money becomes an issue is when we uh, choose to have money be autonomy from our God, uh, freedom from our Heavenly Father, and falsely believing that money is the ultimate source of self-sufficiency. One of the things the Lord is impressing upon me in my heart that really generosity begins at the birthplace of intimacy. Having this friendship, this, this, this father-son, father, uh, this child-mother relationship that we're willing to be with God, we're willing to quiet ourselves. And, and, and I don't know about you, but uh, I think it's pretty amazing that before the age of social media, a writer says, uh, I do not concern myself with great matters, things that are too wonderful for me. I'm content with being with the Lord and letting him define who I am. So as you give today or this week or however you choose to give, uh, may you come to see that generosity first finds its birth through dependency in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks so much for an opportunity to gather together as believers uh, digitally and in-house, Lord. Uh, we thank you that uh, money is, is a great gift. It does give us autonomy, independence, self-sufficiency, but those are not to replace our relationship with you, Lord. Lord, may you search our hearts and, and ask us, like, what are we getting in over our heads with in our, in our day? Like, what are we so consumed by, so stressed at, where, honestly, Lord, we have not taken the time to quietly uh, be with you and allow you to help us sift through whatever it is going through our lives. May the reason we show financial generosity be the result of a dependency, a friendship that we're developing with you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It is really good to, to, be, to, to be with you today. Um, yeah, Tammy and I uh, were with our, our, our son and his family and our daughter uh, in, in Bar Harbor for the last week. Um, now that we've been married 41 and a half years, it was appropriate to celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary. Uh, that's just the way. Honestly, it's not just COVID. This is kind of the theme of our lives. Um, this, is, this is how it goes. We got married at Christmas time, and so we rarely celebrate our anniversary then. It's like, oh, maybe February, March, and then pretty soon it's October and you realize you haven't done anything. But, but we, we, had a, we had a wonderful time 
and uh, we're glad to have the opportunity to connect with, with, with you all. And it's just great to be, you know, in, in a fellowship of Christians. I know many folks are, are still watching online, but those of us who are here face-to-face -face and, you know, with, uh, with being able to see one another is, is, is a great thing. Um, the, the message that we have today is a part of the series you've been a part of uh, on calling over comfort. And uh, God in his providence, uh, you know, this was, this was the theme, and it actually went well with the message that I had just preached uh, at another church where I had I'd been speaking. So, so this is a slight modification of something I've done someplace else for those of you who follow me on the internet. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so you don't have to watch this one again, as it were. But uh, I want to draw our attention to a text from Paul's, letters, uh, Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, uh, beginning with verse 1 and reading down to verse 13. Now, Ephesians is uh, kind of a, it's not a long book. There are six chapters. Uh, you can comfortably read it in, in one sitting. But it, it feels like just a, a, a torrent of, of words, like a fire hose of words. Um, in the original language, it has the longest sentences uh, in the New Testament. So we're going to feel a little bit like we're not catching exactly what's going on with all of these words, but let's listen, follow along, and, and we'll, we'll think about what it is that, that the apostle is saying and, and how it, it, it connects to us. So Ephesians 3, beginning with verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things." His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Now, I don't know about you. In fact, I think I do know about you. I like to be comfortable, and I suspect you like to be comfortable too. I think this is a, a very comfortable worship space that we have here, but I have to admit, a few minutes ago when I was sitting in my seat, I thought, you know, it's a little cold in here. And I thought, somebody ought to do something about that. I thought, I shouldn't say anything about that. That would be rude. And then I just did. <laughs> Why? Why? Because, you know, I like, I like to be comfortable. About eight years ago, uh, Tammy and I were moving, and for the, for the first time in our married lives, we bought new furniture for our living room. Up to that point, we had kind of lived on the, you know, are, are you done with that kind of principle? Uh, and had just kind of inherited used stuff, but we went to the furniture store, and I sat in every chair in that place to find the one that just fit. And finally, I found one that just felt like a cloud. So we ordered that one with the fabric that we wanted and so forth. And now that is my chair, just like Archie Bunker. And, and I sit in that chair and, and I, just, I just feel so comfortable. I am worried though, there's a student um, on our, our campus who's often in our home and he sits in that chair every time. And when he graduates, if that chair is missing, I'm going to know who took it, okay? I uh, recently uh, got a new to, to us car. Uh, you'll, you'll see a picture of it here coming up. Our daughter uh, says what we should call this Papa Smurf. Uh, but uh, previous to this, this is a this 2018 uh, Hyundai Sonata, about the most normy car you can, you can have, I think, that's not a Toyota Camry. Uh, but uh, previous to this, I had a 2004 uh, Buick um, Century, which finally gave up the ghost with 270,000 miles on it. 
So it was pretty special to have something more recent. So when, when I realized that the other car was dead, I got online. I was on Carvana. I was on CarMax. I was checking everything out. I knew I wanted this model because I'd driven a rental, and it just fit me like it was custom-made gloves. You know, the seat was just right, steering wheel in the right place, and so forth. So I got all the equipment on it, and it's, it's been great. I love it. It is so comfortable. But then a problem developed, and you'll see where the problem is in the next picture. <laughs> right in the middle is the switch that controls the angle of the seat back on the driver's seat. It stopped working, which meant I couldn't adjust the angle of my seat. It had to stay in terrible, the same place all the time. Well, I could not have this because one-degree adjustments of that seat are important for my comfort. So I, I made an appointment with the dealership, and I went in early in the morning, and it's on the other side of town, and I'm dealing with all the traffic. And it's just a brave thing to step into the waiting room of the service department of an automobile dealership early in the morning, because even at 62 years of age, I was the youngest person there. Uh, you know, and they, and they check it out, and then I have to make another trip when they get the part, and I do it all again. And why am, I, why am I going through all of this? I'm going through all of this because I want to be comfortable. And let me tell you, now that I can't adjust the seat, I do every five minutes. <laughs> you know, we are, we, are, we are into our comfort, aren't we? Um, Alexis de Tocqueville was a, a, a French writer who came to the United States in the early 19th century just to understand this new American Republic and its people. And, and his, um, his work called Democracy in America is still widely read and appreciated for the insights that it has about this country's character. He wrote, in America, minds are universally preoccupied with meeting the body's every need and attending to life's little comforts. And I say, amen, God bless America. You know, I think that's perfectly okay. I like to be comfortable. Now, when I think about being comfortable, I think about being uncomfortable. And I realize sometimes I'm uncomfortable because of my physical circumstances. But when I think of being uncomfortable, I especially think of uncomfortable things that people have said to me. Maybe I should think of uncomfortable things that I have said. But I think of uncomfortable things that people have said to me. About 20 years ago, I was teaching uh, at a church, um, and uh, we were doing a, a Wednesday night program uh, walking through the texts about the events leading up to Jesus' death and his death and resurrection in preparation for the Easter season. And I, I met a man there who was, you know, like, like to have conversation before and after the class, delightful guy. Uh, so we've talked three or four times. And, and as we're, we're talking uh, after, the, I think, the fourth session, he said to me, you know, becoming HIV positive was the best thing that ever happened to me. I felt uncomfortable. I didn't see that coming. And it was just kind of right there. Well, what in the world did he mean by that? I think he meant something that is not unlike what Paul is talking about in this text in Ephesians. You see, when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he was a prisoner, a prisoner of the Roman Empire who was being held in custody awaiting a trial which could result in his execution. That's an uncomfortable situation. Even though he was under house arrest, which meant he wasn't in a dank dungeon, this was a very uncomfortable situation. And yet in this text, with its long, complicated sentences and its high-flying theological language, Paul is saying something under those circumstances that is remarkable. He's saying that his being a prisoner is a good thing from the perspective of the good news of Jesus. Imagine saying that kind of thing. As he says that, I think Paul is telling us something about ourselves as well. And that's, and that's what I'd like for us to consider today. So let's, let's think about this business of calling versus, versus comfort. I think we all want a place in God's program that is a calling. This is, this is what we really mean by, by calling. It's, it's, it sounds like a very exalted word to have a calling. But to say we have a calling is simply to say we have a place in what God is doing. Well, Christian people are ambitious people. 
And I think, I think this, is, this is important. Uh, you know, I've, I've taught most of my adult life in, in, in uh, Christian higher education. Students often ask me, hey, Dr. Weatherly, who's your favorite contemporary Christian musician? And my answer is always the same, Johann Sebastian Bach. Now, I do that in part because I am a nerd, including about my music and because I want to put the students on. But I really do admire Bach as a Christian musician. Much of his, his music was written for the church, but even the music that he wrote that was not written for the church, he often signed it with a Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. You see, I think the Christians that, that I know in my experience want to be able to add soli deo gloria to everything that they do. This is, this is the way we want to sign off on life. I want my job to be signed soli deo gloria. I want my home to be signed soli deo gloria. I want my family, however my family is arranged, whether I'm married or single, however I'm connected, I want it to be signed soli deo gloria. This is true for my friendships. It's true for my hobbies. I want, I want all of that to be, to be on it. As, as I said, I've, I've spent much of my life working in Christian colleges uh, and, and, and doing work in, in other Christian organizations as well. You find yourself in employment interviews in situations like that where you're considering a, a, a prospective employee for a position. And I often hear people in those interviews say, oh, I would so love to work in a Christian organization because I'll be able to integrate my faith with my work life so, so well and so readily. Whenever folks say that, I always say back to them, I want to make sure you understand we have a policy here, and that is we only hire sinners. And you're going to understand what that means if you come to work here. You know, Christians can be difficult to get along with too sometimes, can't they? But, but you hear express that desire to just bring God into, into everything that we're doing. Well, this is the nature of, of our lives as Christians, but I think even if we don't know Jesus, our ambition, at least in part, reflects God's design for His image bearers. Maybe you're here today or, 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 or online today, and you would say, you know, I'm not really a follower of Jesus. I'm just exploring this kind of thing. This is, this is very true of the way that God has made us as those who bear His image. Because as His image bearers, we're made for community, not just to belong to ourselves, but to belong to one another. And because we, we sense this deep inside ourselves, we have a deep desire to provide, not just for ourselves, but for other people, to make a mark on our world that is positive, to lead, leave a legacy uh, all of those things are desires to contribute to community, to make other people's lives better. And that's, that's something that God has built deep inside us. Now, let's understand, our rebellion against God can profoundly distort the effect of our ambition. So many of the stories around us, so many of the most tragic stories of history are really stories of ambition which has become misdirected so that it becomes cruel and destructive. This is what Christians refer to as sin and, and how it, it has that effect on us. But I would say, nevertheless, with all of that, ambition's roots are in the Creator's soil. This is, this is who we are as people created in God's image and for Christians as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Now, as we think about this, I think we also recognize that we generally think we have a good idea of what our place in God's program, what our calling should be. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but I'm weird. Okay. I, I am. I'm just... I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of a strange guy. Uh, I can say that because I'm leaving this afternoon, and, 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 and it'll be a safe kind of a thing. What part of my weirdness was, I, I had what I, I look back at now as a very specific idea of what my place in God's program was. By the time I was in my late teens, I wanted to be a Bible teacher in a Christian college or seminary setting. As a result of that, I rather quickly developed a, a plan as I thought of it, to gain degrees from specific institutions. I then wanted to teach at my alma mater for the rest of my life. Now, not to leave this out, I also wanted to be married. I wanted to have kids. 
I wanted to have a home, eventually grandchildren, and I wanted to participate in the ministry of the church even while I was serving in, in that kind of setting. Really specific, really specific, and, and you know, weird in that respect. Well, you're probably thinking, ah, there's, there's nothing like that for me. There's nothing like that for me. I suspect, however, that you have a certain idea of your life, which we could describe as your idea of your place in God's program. You want to be rooted in your community, a part of your neighborhood. You want to have a meaningful job in which, as a follower of Jesus, if you are, you can have an influence uh, uh, for, for the Lord. You want your family in whatever shape uh, it exists to be in good order, to have, to have sound relationships, loving relationships. Uh, you would like to have at least modest financial security. We probably don't um, uh, aspire to be rich, but we certainly don't want to be dependent on other people, and we'd like to have some surplus with which to be generous with others. These are the kinds of things that I think people generally articulate as their desire for life, their understanding genuinely as their place in God's program, as their calling. And I want to affirm that kind of ordinary ambition is sacred ambition. This is the stuff of life out of which God does His work in the world. People who are situated like this are those with whom God is accomplishing His purpose in the world. Now, even as we say that, some of us may be thinking, you know, I'm just not one of those people. I don't have a calling. I don't have a place in God's program. I, it's not much that I can do. I'm, I'm basically a spectator while everyone else is a participant. We have more to say about that a little bit later. So we think we have a pretty good idea of what our place in God's program ought to be, but the reality is God's no, God knows better than we do. As I think about this passage in Ephesians, uh, as Paul writes about his own life experience, I realize that young Paul had a very different idea of his place in God's program. Young Paul knew what his place in God's program was. It was to be zealous for the law of Moses. Paul, in the New Testament, begins his life as a, a young Jewish man who has been trained to be a teacher of the law, and he describes himself as zealous for that law. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright reminds us that in Paul's time, zeal was something that you did with a knife. You see, Paul was willing to find people and have them arrested and have them put to death because they did not observe the law of Moses as Paul thought that it ought to be uh, observed. When we see Paul in the book of Acts in the New Testament, he is participating in the stoning of the Christian preacher Stephen, and then later he is going from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. But what happens to him along the way, God shows him better. The Lord Jesus, the risen Christ himself, appeared to Paul in bodily form, just as he did to others following his, his resurrection. And boy, that had its effect, didn't it? Paul goes to Damascus not arresting Christians, but proclaiming Christ. He becomes not a, a, a persecutor, but a missionary. You and I are not going to get an appearance of the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. I'm sorry to disappoint you. If you've come for that today, it's not happening. Okay, You're not Paul. I'm not Paul. This isn't happening. But let's not suggest that that means that God is any less at work in our lives to show us better. The gospel has a way of getting under your skin and getting into your mind, and getting into your heart, and getting into your gut. And the Spirit has a way of working with that in a way that changes our perspective on our lives and our circumstances. You see, Paul's change of plans wasn't just moving from persecutor to missionary. He had a huge change of plans there, but he has other changes that come as well. A few years before writing this letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote a letter to the Romans, 
And in the 15th chapter of that, he said, now here's one of the reasons I'm writing to you. I'm planning to go back to Jerusalem after having preached all over the eastern Mediterranean area. But then I'm going to leave and come to you in Rome because I want to minister to your church and help you become better grounded. But then I hope you will help me move on to preach in Spain because I want to go to a place where the gospel hasn't been preached before, just to the end of the map, as it were, uh, as, as Paul knew it. Well, that was Paul's plan. But what actually happened was very different because when Paul went back to Jerusalem, it was there that he was arrested and became a Roman prisoner. And so Paul, ironically enough, did go to Rome just as the Lord had said to him. The book of Acts tells us that while Paul is a prisoner in Jerusalem, the Lord spoke to him and says, as you have been my witness in Jerusalem, so you will be in Rome. So Paul was there, but under very different circumstances. Well, that's the perspective that helps us understand what Paul is saying in this text, in this, this torrent of words that, that he unleashes in this passage. Listen to how Paul describes himself, uh, describes his place in God's program as a prisoner. At the beginning of the passage, he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. At the end, he speaks of my sufferings, which are for your glory. So the frame around this is, hey, I'm in jail. But in the middle, he says these kinds of things. He says, you know my administration. That's a word that means something like stewardship or, or management. Paul is saying, I'm a manager of God's stuff. That's, that's a part of what I do. He says that he has been entrusted with God's wisdom and knowledge and understanding and revelation, but he also says, I am the least of all of God's people. Now, what is, what is this combination of stuff, you know, how does it come together? Why is this all the case? Paul says this is through the working of his, that is Christ's, power. How did God most greatly demonstrate his power in the world. Is it creation, great as it is? That is a mighty demonstration of God's power. But the Bible tells us that the greatest demonstration of God's power is in the cross of Jesus Christ. God becoming human, living as one of us, and willingly taking our suffering and our guilt and our shame upon himself in an act of public torture, experiencing death and then being raised to life so that we can be raised with him. God's greatest act of power is an act of weakness, of lowliness, of suffering. And so Paul experiences that as a prisoner and says, you see, this is God at work in my life. Like Paul, our place in God's plan will always have the cross in it. Always will. You know, I don't think that I've suffered a lot in my life, but as I, as I reflect on that plan that I had before, one of the things that jumps out at me is the plan to teach at my alma mater my whole professional life. Well, my alma mater doesn't exist anymore. Like a lot of small colleges in the present environment, it went out of business. That was a traumatic experience for me. It certainly meant a, a, a change in, in my life's plan. But through that experience, something that I came to realize is God's kingdom does not work in perpetuating institutions, in keeping the doors of an organization open. No, no, no. It's much more flexible. It's much more integrated into the lives of people than that. It's not about institutions. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. So, our place in God's program will be more like Jesus' place than the place that, that you or I plan. And though that sounds a little scary, it's a good thing. Paul's own story mirrored Jesus' story closely, not just in the fact that he was a prisoner, but even in the way the Bible tells his story is going to Jerusalem, as Jesus had gone to Jerusalem and there being arrested. It's almost as if it's there as, as a, a mirror story to show all of us that all of our lives are going to reflect the life of Jesus. Your life, my life, all of our lives will have their own unique cross-like 
elements. Now, as I think about this, I'm, I'm reminded of, of a, a, a number of, of stories. One of them is a story that I came across years ago uh, in, in the, 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 the early 1980s. Uh, something that had happened in the 1970s. Some of us will remember the name Idi Amin, who was the, the dictator in Uganda in the 1970s. Um, Amin was a brutal dictator, but uh, a part of his program was to persecute Christians specifically because his financial support came from, from sources that were hostile to, to Christianity. There was a leader of the church in Uganda by the name of Festo Kivinjeri, Kevin Jerry became known as the Billy Graham of Africa because he led uh, a movement which, which brought thousands of, 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 of people into the, the Christian faith uh, in, in Africa. He was um, an Anglican bishop in Uganda uh, under Amin in the 1970s. In 1973, with some other Christian leaders in Uganda, uh, Kevin Jerry was allowed to leave with a, a sudden... Uh, word that he had to get out of the country in 24 hours, while one of their, one of their colleagues, Janani Luam, was detained, arrested. And while Kevin Jerry and his family drove as far as they could into the mountains, and then in kind of a Ugandan um, sound of music, walked over a mountain into safety in an adjacent country, uh, Janani Luam's body was found next to an overturned jeep. The government said that he had been killed in an automobile accident, but everyone knew different, that he had been summarily executed. Well, no one quite knew how Christians would react, but Kevin Jerry and others urged the Christians of Uganda to show the love of Christ under these, under these circumstances. 42,000 people came to the capital of Uganda to attend Luwam's funeral. The church, of course, overflowed, and so they, they filled up the soccer stadium that was nearby. As people came into the city, mostly on foot, they brought flowers and gifts of food that they gave to the soldiers who were lining the streets with automatic weapons, ready to, to take violent action should anyone step out of line. They sang, they prayed, they celebrated the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Later, Kevin Jerry made his way to London where he was uh, met by some reporters from Western media. One of them asked uh, him, what do you think about Idi Amin? These were his words. I love Idi Amin. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they do. As evil as Idi Amin is, how can I do less towards him? Wow. That's the cross in a person's life. I think of couples that I have known who became pregnant before marriage, who dealt with the sense of guilt, the sense of shame that that circumstance created, but who remained committed to each other, who worked hard, who married, who accepted help, which is a hard thing to do, a humiliating thing to do, and who built a life together in which they'd nurture one another as husband and wife and nurture their children. The cross is in that kind of story. I think of an abused wife who struggled to save her marriage for years, but who came to realize that for her own safety and the safety of her children, that, that she, she had to end the, the marriage with divorce, who suffered through that circumstance, who had to, to build an independent life, but who became through that experience a help and an advocate for abused women and a leader in the divorce recovery ministry of her church. I think of a business owner that I know whose business was completely destroyed by her partner's embezzlement and who used that not as an occasion to become bitter, but to, to make a change in her life and followed in her own mother's footsteps and became a teacher to missionary children in the developing world really giving the rest of her life as a volunteer, as it were, uh, with, with receiving financial res support from the church rather than earning her own living so that the, the, the missionary parents could be fully free to do the, the ministry for which they had traveled to that place in the world. I think of a woman who suffered through postpartum depression, but who overcame that and became someone who was able to notice and help 
when other women were going through similar experiences. That was my own mother. And I think of that HIV positive guy that I mentioned earlier. What in the world was he talking about? Well, he did finally elaborate. He, he talked about the fact that he was a drug addict and that he had not taken his life seriously. But when he got the word of, of his HIV positive condition, he realized he had to start taking life seriously. And so he said, I found the Lord. Really, the Lord found me. And for the first time in my life, I became a real husband. I became a real father. I became real on the job. This was the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, some of us are thinking, yeah, those stories are great, but I'm just not one of those people. For those who are hearing that voice, I want to say this. You, too, are uniquely positioned for a place in God's program. How? I'm, I'm nothing. I'm just an ordinary person. Let's remember, the Lord's program always has the cross in it. And that means that things don't have to be big or fancy or public. They're small. They're simple. They're lowly. That's how the cross is. No matter who you are, you are uniquely positioned in this world. Your influence and your presence with family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, schoolmates, strangers, where you are every day and every moment, that is your administration, your stewardship, your management of God's grace. The influence you have as someone who simply loves other people in the name of Jesus and is ready to tell them why when the occasion is appropriate, that's how God does His work in the world. Yeah, you have a place, you have a calling. Well, how can we begin to put these kinds of things into action? How can we take this grand passage of Ephesians and make it real for us? Let me make a few suggestions. First of all, I think we need to plan, but we need to plan humbly. And let me say this, if you are a recent graduate of high school or college, or if you are connected to someone who is by family or friendship, this should be a relief to you. You know, there's a lot of specificity to our planning in this country, isn't there? You know, we're going to do this, 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 and this. I had all of that stuff planned out. We put this demand on 18-year-olds and 22-year-olds, you know. Oh, what are you going to do for the, rest, for the next 45 years of your life? How are you going to earn a living, pay off your student loans, and become a productive member of society and give me grandchildren? Okay? That's how it goes, right? Let's just take the foot off the accelerator for a moment with this, shall we? Let's make ourselves available. Let's make ourselves humble. Let's make ourselves ready to listen and to respond. Sure, let's plan, but plan humbly, remembering God knows better than we do. I think we need to let God's Spirit show us how our lives impact others. Most of us, I think, don't realize how important we are to the people around us. And we need to see this, not so that we feel self-important, but so that we can understand how God is at work in our lives, even when we're not thinking about it. This means always being ready to take the lowly position. That's the nature of the cross of Christ. This, this even means, you know, you get a promotion on the job. You don't use that to exalt yourself. You use that to serve the people with whom you work. Always remember what you belong to and who you belong to. We belong to Christ, the Christ of the cross. That means that we go through the world often in a position of suffering, always in a position of lowliness and service. And I think we need to watch what God does and celebrate it. Watch what God does and celebrate it. Because he's doing so much that we can begin to see when the Spirit gives us eyes to see. Will you pray with me? Lord, we admit that sometimes um, our desire is not simply to be comfortable, but to be in charge. And so we surrender ourselves to you in this moment again, uh, aware that you have placed this deep desire 
in our hearts that we should be a part of what you're doing. But aware as well that you are Lord and that the administration that you give to us is, is, is yours to give. So guide us, Lord, we pray, but show us already how you are working in and among your people. Give us the eyes of faith to, to perceive the world as, as you see it, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Weatherly. As we come to our time of communion, I couldn't help but think about uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul really gives the local church one job, which is to say the ministry of reconciliation. In chapter 5, verse 19, Paul writes, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he is committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal through us for your coworkers to be saved, your neighbors to be saved, your parents and your children to be saved. In verse 21, Paul says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I appreciate what Dr. Weatherly had said because it's so easy uh, to look at you know, religious people on a stage or uh, incredible historical moments in history with people that stood up and did the courageous thing and we think, well, I got to go to work tomorrow. Um, what does that mean? What it means and the program of God and the ministry of reconciliation is you have influence. And every invitation begins with a conversation. And so you, may you be reminded as we eat the bread and, and drink the juice that communion, though is a part of remembering, right? It's what Jesus said to do before he was crucified. Uh, communion is also a commissioning. It's a reminder that we, we have a job to do. We have a job to do outside of make sure we get to church on time or before the second worship song, right? We have a job to do, which is to share the love of Christ with the people that God has allowed us to have influence with. The uncomfortable thing, like for me, is taking the moment to have a conversation with them. What is it for you? May you be reminded today that you are being called and commissioned to share the love of Christ with whom God has given you influence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the invitation to choose a calling over our comfort. That we should think very carefully about what it means to be a disciple and what it means to live in the tension of Kind of, want to, kind, kind of wanting to follow you, but kind of wanting to hang on to comfort and stuff. God, may we, um, may we see that the people in front of us might be the people you might be inviting us to share your love with. And, and, if, and if we're nervous, maybe, maybe it's just through action and, and just loving them, no strings attached. But over time, and as trust is built, give us the courage to do the eternal thing and to share the love of Christ with them. Jesus, we thank you that you model that for us every week. That you allowed your body to be broken and you shed your blood. How could we respond with anything less than a life willing to share your love with other people. Commission us now, encourage us now, empower us now as we eat the bread and drink the juice to be your ambassadors, to live a life worthy of the calling, not the comfort, the calling that you have called to us in Christ Jesus. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Church, we'd love for you to come sing with us in worship.
for worshiping with us, church. Uh, if you're new to RCC, we'd love to meet you out in the lobby at the Hub. We love you. Have a great week. Come back for a brand new teaching series where we're going to spend six weeks on prayer. Have a great week.